Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and I'm joined in our New York studios by co-host Shannon Bond. Shannon, you and I just got done reading a terrific book, and it's going to be the topic of one of today's segments. How awesome was the conversation that we had with Mei Fong? It was really, really interesting. And this book, I highly recommend all of our readers go out and read it. It's called One Child. It's about China's one-child policy. And it talks about the economic and societal implications for China of the policy, which has been going on for three decades. But at the same time, it has all these extraordinary and fascinating and even quirky uh, implications for how people run their lives. I didn't know how deeply embedded it was in everything that happens in China. Yeah. I mean, one of the, my favorite things about this book is that uh, she gives you really this flavor by all these individual stories and these kind of really amazing individual characters. Um, they get, they, you do get this sense of just how this society has com- been completely remade um, by this policy that was you know, only put in place essentially right around the time we were born. Exactly. And with that teaser, let's get right to the contents of today's show. As we just said, first up on today's show, Shannon and I talked to Mei Fong, the author of One Child. You're not going to want to miss that. We had a great chat and we recommend the book. And after that, we're going to talk about Theranos, the troubled tech company that everybody thought was going to disrupt a huge part of the healthcare sector. That's not exactly how things worked out. We'll talk to David Crow and Sujit Indap of the FT. And finally, a follow-up segment with Amelia Mahasek and, of course, our long-form recommendations. Lots of fun stuff today. Stick around. And as we just said, we are so excited about the first guest on today's podcast. Shannon and I are here with Mei Fong. She's the author of One Child, a book about the impact of China's one-child policy on the country's economy and society. Mei is a fellow at the New America Foundation and formerly a reporter at the Wall Street Journal in China. Mei, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, so here's where I want to start because I think a lot of people are familiar with the basics of the one-child policy. Not too many people, I think, are going to be familiar with the details. So why don't we start there? What exactly it said, when it started, and why it was first introduced? Okay. So the one-child policy was introduced in 1980. So it's been going on for about 30-something years. And even though we call it one child for convenience, it really basically describes a basket of regulations um, surrounding the issue of reproduction in China. And it doesn't strictly limit everybody to the one-child policy, which is why it can be very confusing. It's roughly about a third of all households are strictly limited to the one-child policy, out of which about 90% of them will be in urban areas. The rest have some exceptions to the rules. So you could possibly have more than one child if you were one of China's ethnic minorities, or let's say if you had a dangerous profession, such as being a coal miner or a fisherman. 
Uh, or you could have more children if you're willing to pay uh, some, several multiples of your household income. So that makes it very confusing for people in China, let alone outside China, to really understand. It's like the U.S. tax with, code. with sisters or brothers or something Exactly. Like and that. you say, well, yeah, I ain't got friends with sisters or brothers. So, yeah, clearly the one-child policy doesn't apply anymore, you know. But it's like the U.S. tax code. It, it really varies a lot. It's very confusing. And, and what were the reasons behind its introduction uh, in 1980? Well, about the there, China was at the time having a big population boom. It was growing. Um, you know, China is the most populous nation. You know, I mean, if you go back to Monty Python, <laughs> I like Chinese. You know, they were singing back in the 1980s. There are 900 million of the world of them in the world today. You better like them. That's what I say. So, China's an old ancient culture. It's always had a lot of people, and during that period of time, it still had a lot of people. And China was very poor. It was just coming off Cultural Revolution, so they were very concerned that um, if they didn't limit the number of mouths, there wouldn't be enough for anyone, um, you know, trying to take education resources, uh, health, all these things. That's interesting because it's like an, an almost zero-sum view of population growth, whereas if you have more people and a certain amount of economic growth, then it's going to be diluted because it's spread amongst the people, right? Yeah, but don't forget, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, people weren't really thinking that way. People were just thinking very much in their zero sum. Let's have, you know, the population is going to overwhelm the earth. It wasn't just China. If you think about uh, Paul Ehrlich, he pu published, you know, the population bomb then. Uh, there was the zero population movement and uh, the Club of Rome. Everybody had all these projections and some of them, you know, the most pessimistic ones basically had a doomsday scenario. But whereby by now, basically, we would all be it'd be game over. We're all dead. You know, we've exhausted all our resources. Right. So the idea had a lot of credibility, not just inside of China, but in the West as That's well. That's true. Yeah. Can you talk about what happened uh, in the immediate aftermath of the introduction? Because this is something I think a lot of people are also ignorant of, that there were some fairly brutal means of enforcement that were used to make sure that some families only had one child. Yeah, I mean, you know, the policy was clearly very unpopular. Something so intrusive like that would never have worked without some sticks. And so some of these sticks, the measures uh, taken to ensure compliance was, one, in order to make the um, population police officers, as they call it, I call them the population police or the family planning office, uh, officers, in order to make them do something so unpleasant, they in turn were subject to a very strict kind of a code uh, that was called the yi piao fou jie, or the one vote veto. And the idea was they would, uh, if the birth quotas in their district were not met, then all of them would be censured, would risk losing their jobs, would be fined. And these were all very severe things. So they in turn were equally more brutal to the people under them because it was clear the birth quota maintaining it was number one. Um, and then for the people themselves, you know, a whole range of measures. So fines were one thing. Initially in the beginning when China was very poor and there weren't a lot of money going around, and this would result in confiscation of property. Um, you would go and go to somebody's house, farmhouse, and take anything that would make it hurt, basically, you know. If they had a second child. If they were out of quarter, you know, yeah. so they're the second or third, and all these fines were multiplied. So or sometimes if they didn't have any money or anything valuable to seize, then they would actually cause property damage. You know, they would raise your home in some cases and knock a couple of holes in your roof, do all these things. That was one issue. The second issue was, uh, and it wasn't just a strictly an issue of having more children. 
it was also an issue of being compliant because after you had your quota, you were supposed to get sterilized. So if people were reluctant to get sterilized, again, coercion might be used. And some of it might be in a form of detention of your relatives. Uh, say if you uh, were reluctant to be sterilized or let's say you were pregnant with your second or third child and you didn't have the permit, they might say detain your, your mother or your father or, or some loved one and say, okay, you better show up for this. Otherwise, your mother's going to stay in jail for a, a long period of time. And the third thing, of course, was um, you know until you gave birth, basically, it was pretty much fair game in many cases for them to take you and take you for a forced abortion. That was why very many women would try and hide. They knew that maybe after that they would have to pay the fine, but at least the child would be born. So that at least would be something. So at least even up until 2012, there were cases where forced abortions, although technically speaking, after the six months, it is illegal to have a forced abortion. Okay. Why don't we start talking about the book then? Because you use a really kind of powerful framing device at the start of the book. You look at the implications of the one-child policy through the lens of a tragedy, of an earthquake, uh, I believe in Sichuan province. Can you just talk about why you chose that and sort of its impact on you? Well, in 2008, I had been sent to Beijing to write about the Olympics. Even though I don't really know anything about sports, I still don't. But it was actually a wonderful uh, sort of a platform to write about China's rise. And of course, obviously, it was also big business, you know, which is very interesting for my paper, Wall Street Journal. You know, it was a huge marketing opportunity to tap this billion uh, strong consumer market, all sorts of branding opportunities. But then in May, there was this big 8.0 scale um, earthquake. And that sort of took over the story for a little bit or threatened to um, in Sichuan province. And um, this area is very mountainous, it's very poor. And uh, there were a huge number of casualties, over 70,000 casualties. And um, a, a, a significant amount of them were children who were killed in a collapse of schools. Now, initially, I just covered this as a sort of a normal natural disaster. You know, this was just a horrible tragedy that happened. But, you know, I noticed that very soon after the disaster, a lot of parents, bereaved parents, were actually uh, going to hospitals to have sterilizations reversed. We're talking a matter of weeks, you know, um, and they were going to do that. And then that's when I discovered that this was an area that was actually an epicenter, oh, sorry, the epicenter area was actually a a test pilot project for the one-child policy. So before they took the one-child policy nationwide, they experimented in certain areas to see if this could work, if they could bring down the birth rates very drastically. And in this area, they did it, and it worked so well that they were sort of heartened by that and decided, yes, we can do this. We can do this nationwide. So 30-something years later, it became a huge irony that not only were these uh, a lot of children killed, they were only children. And so you talk about, I mean, this this example in, in Sichuan where you then have these parents who, of course, I mean, it's devastating for any parent to lose a child, but, but your only child and for many of these parents who themselves don't have necessarily a large family structure either. I'm, I'm curious, sort of over, as you, over the course of your research and as, as you look at the over the decades of this policy, I mean, it, it seems that it really does impact everyone from, you know, even if only essentially 30 percent of the population, as you say, is subject to the really strict, you may only have one child. It's sort of permeated into culture and it really has changed the way it seems that the identity of a family in China exists. So I wonder if you talk a bit about sort of the impact on everything from 
what the children are like, you know, what the, the differences we see in this generation of children, as well as what's happening with the elderly population uh, of parents who now only have a single child to help support them in their old age. Okay. So, um, Shannon, initially when I moved there in the early mid-2000s, there was a sense perhaps that the one-child policy was not so um, relevant anymore. You know, first of all, all these issues of abortions and sterilizations were in the countryside. We didn't see so much of it. China was definitely on a huge economic upswing. So um, there was a sense that, you know, those things were sort of not that important anymore. They maybe weren't happening as much anymore. Everybody only really wanted to have one child. At least that was the sense certainly in the cities. And as we say, even though it's only really a third of households, it's about 90% of city urban dwellers. And these are your major consumers, right. your major you know, economic producers, you know, so, so that is quite significant. It was only later on when I started really exploring the book and looking into it more deeply that I realized that the one-child policy, aside from the extremes, really permeated everyday living. So one of the issues is, of course, the gender imbalance. So because, um, you know, China has been historically a, a culture that really reveres sons, you know, to carry on the family line. I would add that England is pretty was pretty much the same, especially during the time of <laughs> Austin, that, you know, when families were forced to choose, many of them chose sons. And so as a result, you know, China now has something like 30 million uh, surplus bachelors, which is roughly about the size of the population of Canada. And these are men who will never numerically cannot find women to carry on and have families. They are called uh, guanggong, what we call bare branches, you know, biological dead ends. That is the name. It's quite brutal. So how does this result? And then the other issue, of course, is you also have a whole generation of so-called little empress, you know, one child to which everything has been given, so much more is expected of. That's the issue, right? It's because now the flip side is the oldest of these one-child generation in their mid-30s. Now, these two factors com- combine together, certainly, to uh, to result in a huge marriage squeeze and marriage anxiety. You can imagine if you have only one son and uh, only one child, and you know that there's a gender imbalance, there's so much anxiety on you to ensure that your child gets married, married right to someone, and and, and produces the next generation because all your hopes are concentrated on him. China is one of the few places I see where um, parents are so invested in their children's marital choices. You know, you have uh, retirees in parks writing down classified ads for their children, you know, putting my daughter so and so. You have um, major um, companies uh, like a um, Baidu, which is kind of China's Google, organizing uh, singles mixers for their um, mostly male <laughs> engineers. They call them Tanshinjilebu singles clubs. And these are considered an important way of retaining talent. And not only does Baidu have these mixers, but they also send newsletters to the parents telling them they have these mixers, which <laughs> makes the parents very inclined to have their children work for Baidu. And then it also in- impacts hiring decisions as well of certain major companies. Some major companies will not um, will specifically advertise that they don't wish to hire children, only children. They'll say we prefer candidates with siblings. And and most and, and these companies will say, well, you know, um we find that uh, only children tend to, you know, uh, our job maybe involves a lot of travel and parents who have only children will object. And so they probably quit really after a month or two. <laughs> so all down the line, you see it in a sort of an everyday fabric. So that's when you're married. And then what happens when you age? Now, that's another big issue going down the line. 
China now has, I think, something like a five working adults to one retiree. That's a nice, healthy economic ratio. In a little matter of 20-something years, it's going to jump to one and a half to one. That's huge. And, in some, and, and is, there, is there much of a social safety net that's being offered? It's by being the state? developed, but you know, this is this is a you know, the senior senior retiree population is going to be bigger than all of Europe. Right. <laughs> that that social it's safety a lot net to better take on. be huge. Yeah. And at the same time, you vastly diminish your family resources to support one kid mm-hmm. for all these old people. You mm-hmm. can imagine one kid to support. They coined a term called four two one. Four adults, two parents, one kid. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a pyramid, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at the end, now the pyramid's inverting. The kid has to support everything. Right. And you also discussed sort of the impact we've seen on, on real estate prices, right? I mean, where, first of all, I mean, I was really struck by the story you have of one young bachelor. I mean, his parents essentially what spend their life savings to help him buy an apartment so that he's more marriageable. But, you know, the long-term impact, I mean, how is he even going to be able to make those mortgage payments, essentially you're sort of saddling this generation potentially with a huge amount of debt. It's true. And they, they, it's what they call them fangnu, house slaves. <laughs> so he's he's like, they, they spend 80% of their income every month servicing the mortgage. So it's really down to, you know, really cost cutting. But at the same time, he is supposed to, he took on this heavy debt to find a woman, a bride. But he has no money to woo whatever woman he has. You know, a date is, is very expensive for him. So he has to think you know, really, really hard every time he has a potential date and really find cost-cutting ways to woo a woman. (laughs) One of the reasons that the earthquake story was also so powerful and moving was that a lot of these parents, when they lost their only child and had no other child to sort of rely on in their old age, also faced a kind of upending of their entire social lives because their neighbors were afraid that they would start relying on them and so they would be shunned. I mean, can you talk a little bit about some of the social consequences for people who end up either through tragedy or just because of life circumstances outside of this traditional structure of parents and one child? Yeah, you know, despite the fact that China has so abbreviated the family structure, it's still a very traditional family structure. One man, one woman, one kid, right? They don't have a lot of variations on the theme. You and know? a lot of pressure to get married. And right? A lot of and pressure. You are not considered an adult until you are married, and you are not considered fulfilled your, your duty to your ancestors until you've had a child. So when you are no longer a child, uh, when you have no no longer have a child, you're called shudu. Uh, There's a name for that in China now. When you are uh, someone who has lost their only child, uh, and there are something like um, seventy five thousand of them, about a million of them every year, shudu parents. And so, for these kind of parents, it's both a loss of social status, but it's also a loss of financial um, income for many people. As you said, the social safety net is is not fully developed yet. And then it boils down to, you know, so many things in a structure that have not been set up for them. They find it hard to get admitted to nursing homes traditionally because nursing homes say you have no progeny who's going to pay for your future treatments. They also find it hard to buy burial plots. And then, you know, they also don't even want to go to nursing homes. I, I, I talked to a, a, a guy who said, I, I, I don't want, I can't face the idea of being in a nursing home on family day when other people have their children visiting. I just can't bear it. <laughs> Something that was also kind of interesting was that you argue that the one-child policy wasn't just a kind of aggressive, coercive, and in many cases, brutal way of trying to shrink population growth. Actually, it was also just totally unnecessary 
because an earlier project seemed to have been working. Uh, can you talk about that? And then if you can also afterwards talk about what's happening nowadays, in other words, whether or not China will be able to undo the kind of demographic burden that it's brought on the country. Sure. So the funny thing about China, and a lot of people outside China don't know it, is that for 10 years before the uh, the one-child policy was launched, they actually had in place a, a much more gentler uh, population planning policy. This was called the Later, Longer, and Fewer Program. It was much less coercive, and the whole idea was to encourage people to get married later and have fewer kids. It lasted for about 10 years, and during that period of time, population size was dramatically halved. The a- average family size per family was went from six kids to three. So that was pretty good. And a lot of um, demographers argue that if they kept going in that same direction, it would probably have fallen to, the population would probably have fallen pretty much without any of these uh, drastic side effects that we see. Certainly, we see a lot of China's neighbors. Uh, they've also managed to grow the uh, economy and also you know, reduce the population size quite significantly without having to resort to anything so major. And then, of course, the other problem of the one-child policy now, which is one reason why the government has announced a, a loosening of it to a two-child policy, is that it's a, almost a victim of its own success. You know, they don't have enough pe- They're not going to have enough people down the line. That's what they're worried about. And so there's this deep concern that even with a, a widening of, a loosening of restrictions, that a lot of people are not going to take advantage of these the second child and have more children. Certainly, a lot of opinion polls indicate that many Chinese felt find it's too expensive, too onerous. It's, it's almost the one-child policy has changed the mindset of an entire generation of Chinese people. It'll be very, very interesting to see if they can reverse that. I mean, it's certainly been, it's, it, the way you write about it, it seems like it has been, been internalized. And in some ways, that also the economic situation, the way that's changed, has reinforced it. I mean, if it is more expensive, generally, if your quality of life is going up, but also your cost of living is going up. To be able to put all your resources into one child seems like a a rational decision on the individual level. Right. And then, you know, in order for China to um, sort of turn on the baby tap, they're going to have to do something like what France does, which is to put a whole array of policies in place that are family friendly, uh, which are also expensive to do, you know, uh, free education or substantially cheaper education, childcare, maternity benefits, all those issues. And balance against that, they're also going to have to spend on a huge retiree population, those things. So where's where's all that money going to go? How much of it would they have? They're, they're the old saying in China is they're going to get old before they get rich. They've certainly arrived at first world problems without having quite arrived at that stage yet. One final question. I wish we had a bit more time, but we haven't quite done justice to the book in one sense, which is that this was also a very personal book. And you talk about how you interpreted the one-child policy also through the prism of your own efforts uh, to get pregnant while you were in China. Can you talk a little bit about your experience and how that affected your views of this policy and of its sort of wider uh, societal implications? Yeah, I when I was covering the earthquake in Sichuan, I was actually pregnant at the time. I didn't know it. And so this was actually a very joyous occasion for me because I'd been struggling with infertility, as a lot of older mothers do. <laughs> and you know, but at the same time, I was writing a lot about people who had just lost their children, so the juxtaposition was very strange. And then later on, I had a miscarriage. And then later on, I tried IVF in China, and then it op- again opened the door to uh, all these dodges that people were doing to use technology to get around the one-child policy, using IVF to get multiples, which counts as one birth, and they don't get fined. So all these sort of experiments in parenthood um, 
I, I hesitated about including that in the book, honestly. I, I, you know, I've been trained to write from a very dispassionate point of view. But I felt that, you know, in the end, you know, this is not a book just about policy. It's about family and the most intimate things. Why do we have children? What is the cost? What is the, why do, why do we, what is this powerful desire for parenthood that you have and what uh, what happens when this desire is is thwarted in some way you know what is unleashed <laughs> yeah uh so may before we let you go what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners so it's a book called um when breath becomes air by a uh, a surgeon called paul kalanithi who's dead now he wrote the book when he was dying and it's all meditation on what life means you know it's only when you and he's a beautiful writer he was both a neurosurgeon and also a, a master student in english literature so you can see a lot of it and he, he's just lovely you know i i guess i've come off writing a book about birth so maybe i'm naturally gravitating to it's a book about death <laughs> But in the end, it's all about, you know, everything highlights what life means, right? Mei Fong, uh, fellow at New America, the book is One Child. Shannon and I really loved it. Thanks so much for being on Alpha Chat. Oh, thank you. I like the part where you said we really loved it. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and coming up next on the show, Theranos. A blood testing company that everybody expected would be a huge disruptor to the healthcare sector. It hasn't turned out that way, especially after the company ran into huge regulatory problems in the recent months. We are joined by David Crow of the FT and Sajit Indep of the Lex Column to discuss. Guys, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. I think a lot of people are familiar with Theranos' regulatory troubles, but just in case, David, why don't you catch us up before we get to the recent piece uh, that you and Sujit published in the FT. Okay, so two big regulatory problems for Theranos, if you like. One in October, a investigation into its uh, nanotainer. Now, the nanotainer is a tiny finger prick vial. Put it in the end of your finger, it draws a a small amount of blood. And the whole Theranos revolution, if you like, was that this would replace the scary venous draw and the five vials or whatever you have to give when you uh, go to the doctor's surgery. Anyway, the FDA said, look, this isn't approved. You shouldn't be using this to collect patient blood for everything apart from one of the over 260 tests that they offer. And if that weren't bad enough, um, earlier this month, uh, the CMS, uh, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, I think it is, released a a really damning report uh, that sounded the highest level of warning against Theranos' lab in California. And that indicates that it risks serious harm, injury or death. How would it do that? Well, I think the... The assumption is if you have cancer and they get the the test wrong and it comes back with, with the wrong reading uh, and you waste two or three weeks, uh, it could be the difference between life or death. So sure. it obviously doesn't kill you overnight, but, but it jeopardizes your life. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the story itself then. It's about how Theranos is actually still enjoying some success in the state of Arizona, right? David, why don't you start by taking us through the basics and why Arizona is so important to Theranos and all the other states are not or are less important? Well, in this country, there is a law that you can only get a diagnostic test that is ordered by a doctor. So if you think there's something wrong with you, you go to the doctor, the doctor sends you to get the test. 
And Arizona changed the law to allow the consumer to order their own tests directly. And that is what Theranos wanted to do. The only way it saw of ever breaking the duopoly, which is Quest and LabCorp, on testing was to allow consumers to go and get their own tests. You, and, and the only place that changed the law is Arizona. And they've got this big deal with Walgreens in Arizona inside the pharmacy chain. Uh, there's a little Theranos booth and you can go and get your tests done there. And Sujit, you actually went and got some testing there yourself, right? While you were in Arizona? I did. So uh, I grew up in Arizona and so was going back for the holiday. And the Theranos story really had blown up in October with a series of articles from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, And so I thought I'm going home to the state where it's the one place you can actually get a Theranos blood test. And I thought I would just check it out and see maybe if I could uh, get a test myself. I hadn't been to a doctor in a while and hadn't had any blood work done. So I figured it was uh, an opportunity to to actually uh, kill two birds with one stone. To both end up writing a story for the FT and, hey, check on whether or not you're healthy. Right. So what's interesting is the story really is a national story. Uh, Either New York or California-based journalists seem to be pursuing it. But the real uh, action or one part of the the action is in Arizona. And that angle hadn't really been explored. So I just thought it was was an interesting angle on a a well-covered story I could uh, could chase. So is it any different than sort of the uh, other blood testing you've you've had done before if you get your blood drawn like at a more traditional lab or at a doctor's office? Yeah, so I'll tell you what I did. So I, one afternoon, I just stopped by a Walgreens not far from my home uh, and walked in, saw the Theranos clinic in the back, walked over and just wanted to check it out. And so along the wall, there's a menu uh, of tests you can get and there's a informational pamphlet. So I flipped through that. I talked to the, uh, the phlebotomist who, who draws the blood and asked some questions about uh, the process. And uh, it turned out that for the test I wanted, uh, they recommended fasting. Uh, which is normal. So I did, went back the next morning early without having eaten for a few hours and actually had the test done. So basically you fill out the form, you say what test you want. Uh, it's very interesting. The menu is like very densely packed. It's one page. It's like, as I say in the story, it's like a Chinese menu. And so uh, I picked a couple of bundles. One was uh, the men's health panel, which is like cholesterol, things like that. Filled it out and was uh, very quickly ushered back into the room. As uh, people who follow Theranos know, you, the, the nanotainer, the the finger prick test is not available unless you're only getting a herpes test. So I was getting a much more uh, broad set of tests. So I actually had a regular uh, a regular blood draw like uh, any other. Uh, like with blood. a needle and all. Yeah, it was yeah. a needle in my arm. took five vials of blood. <laughs> uh, I was a little bit nervous. I hadn't had a blood test in a while. And what's also interesting about Arizona, I should mention, is that there is a big advertising campaign going on for their own. You would think that they perhaps had been humbled or, or chastened uh, because of all the bad publicity in the last few months. But in fact... Uh, there's no sense of that in Arizona. You walk into the land of the airport, there's a huge banner greeting you saying Theranos. There's ads on TV and radio. There's basically two themes to them. One uh, is that uh, this idea of consumer-directed healthcare. You can just walk in and get a test without a doctor's results. It's, it's empowering. Uh, and then, oddly enough, there were some ads about how their test was less painful. They were They were giving the impression that they were not doing the traditional arm test, like the finger prick test was really what they were doing, which they were not. But as we have subsequently learned, really what they were saying is, we're doing the arm test. It's just less painful than your traditional. So it seemed to be a little bit misleading. But you, the, the argument that the company has always made is that you know it empowers you. You get to skip all the red tape and everything. But in your case, you got the test done and then you didn't know how to read the results. So it seems like you'd have to go back to the doctor for that anyways. Wouldn't it be yeah. a little bit redundant? And, and that's interesting uh, because you get the test via app. You uh, you get the test and you 
download the app. And then within 24 hours, it took me a couple of days because it was the holidays, perhaps. I got the results via app. I open up the app and then I just scroll down and see all the results. And for some of the stuff, it's relatively straightforward, like cholesterol. I think we have a sense of kind of what good numbers are. But there are uh, many... Uh, the test where you just, uh, it's technical terms which you just don't understand. Some of them have an explanation and some of them don't. And so you're left with this very technical test result and you can't interpret what it means. You have a scale, it says kind of red, green, so you know whether it's good or bad. But anything deeper than that, uh, you would uh, need to take to a doctor to, to interpret. Yeah. David, can we talk about the sort of political landscape and whether or not the company seems to have a future anywhere else but Arizona. Because, I mean, what happened in Arizona was kind of interesting itself. There seemed to be a lot of support for it, but some politicians held out, voted against it, and they don't seem to regret that decision at all. I mean, talk about sort of the politics uh, surrounding this. Well, I don't see any state legislatures changing the law in favor of Theranos now, and, and that's partly their biggest problem if they can't grow their market beyond Arizona. Um, they've stopped doing tests in California since this damning report I mentioned, then it's hard to see how they build a scalable business. And there is a lot of opposition to this. I mean, it's interesting, Sajit's talking about not understanding the tests. I mean, the medical establishments say that the tests are frankly useless in the absence of clinical context. You know, you get a test if you don't feel well, if you have a pain somewhere or, or something's not right, you go in and they do the test that's appropriate. Uh, one of the things Sajit, I think, got tested for was PSA levels, which is part of the men's health package. And it's a surrogate for prostate cancer. But we don't test men under a certain age, it's about 50 or, or whatever, for PSA levels, because almost always, if they're elevated in men under 50, they do not indicate that the person has prostate cancer. They indicate something else, something more benign. And doctors are really worried that People will get a high PSA reading from Theranos and demand that they get the biopsy, demand that they go in for what is, as you can imagine, a very invasive uncomfortable, and quite dangerous procedure. So there's a huge amount of entrenched opposition to the Theranos idea of testing that cuts out the doctor. Now, obviously, Theranos say, well, that's what disruption is. The establishment always weigh in and say, we don't want to change the way we're doing things. And of course, doctors get nice kickbacks for sending you for your tests at the moment, and they probably don't want to lose that stream of revenue. Also, from the point of view of like the future of Theranos' business model, like what's going on there? So they, they can't use the devices that are supposed to be the devices that you allow you to do this small amount without pain, but they're also not using their own, the machines, right, that they themselves have designed. So essentially, if they're like using other people's machines, how are they really any different from the existing companies? And what happens? The business model, as you point out, is twofold. One is that it's this proprietary technology. Now, lots of question marks over whether the proprietary technology actually even works and really whether it's ever worked in the way that the company says it does. And the second one is this ability to cut out the doctor. Now, if they can't get any more states to change the law and they can't get the regulators to approve their proprietary technology, then they are trying to break what is a very secure duopoly in testing and they're trying to do it from a position of weakness and, and so and what's interesting is this law in arizona it's considered the theranos law but in fact it's for any lab and in fact quest has opened up their own clinics uh in another rival drugstore in, in safeway and indeed safeway. that was meant to be a theranos deal theranos were at the final hurdle with that and safeway pulled out didn't want to go with Theranos after the reputational damage. And Quest, which is one of Theranos' biggest rivals, jumped in and, and took that deal off them. So you've got a couple of options if you want to just walk in and get a blood test in Arizona. It's not just Theranos. So 
one, one last question, uh, and then we got to go. I guess I just want to ask you guys to comment on the astounding fall from grace that Theranos has experienced. I mean, there, there's sort of there's little to compare it with, right? I mean, this is a company that was the darling of investors. It was thought to be a company that was founded by this young woman, you know, who was I think uh, in 19 when she founded it. It was going to create extraordinary change and maybe be a model for other tech companies in the healthcare sector. And it was valued at like $9 billion, right? Which is the same, incidentally, as Quest or LabCorp. I can't remember yeah. what one, but same sort of valuation as they have on the public market. Yeah. I mean, put this into context for us. I mean, would this be one of the one of the most astounding disappointments um, that we've seen for a private company in some time? I mean, it feels like a, a P.T. Barnum skit, right? There's, uh, there's no there, there's nothing going on. And so it does seem unprecedented. And what's also interesting is, is the more layers you peel back, the more questions uh, are asked. I mean, we're getting into co- corporate governance. David Boyes, the famous lawyer, is on the board of the company and is also defending the company, which is raising all sorts of questions about conflicts of interest. And the more you look at it, the more... Uh, Nothing seems right, and no one was really paying attention, even though it was sort of obvious. If you, yeah, Elizabeth you Holmes was her name. The name had escaped me for a second, but right. she's the, the founder of the company. Uh, David? I mean, I think it goes to the heart of whether the medical establishment can really be disrupted in the same way that Silicon Valley has traditionally disrupted other sectors. Because if you try to disrupt the medical establishment and you get it wrong, then people are going to pay with their lives. And so I think it's not just a a terrible fall from grace for Theranos, but a terrible fall from grace for all the companies that were behind it, uh, chomping uh, at their heels and desperate to get their own VC funding. I'm sure those conversations have got a lot harder now. Yeah, great point. David, what's your long form recommendation this week? Okay, so my long-form recommendation is the Amtrak story in New York Times magazine, um, which is this very sensible, restrained look at the Amtrak crash uh, that happened in the Northeastern Corridor. And I was struck when I was reading it, you just don't get journalism like that in the UK. We would be after that train driver. We would be on his doorstep every day, ruining his life, writing scurrilous stuff about his past. And actually, someone here has tried to put it together. And that's made me sort of, I thought it was a nice day for journalism. Sajit, your long-form rec for our listeners. Sure. I will stick to the healthcare startup disruption theme. There's a company called Zenefits, which is this uh, highly valued Silicon Valley healthcare company that was going to help companies establish their own health plans uh, in a much cheaper way. They've had a pretty steep downfall this week. The CEO had to leave uh, under allegations they had used unlicensed brokers. And so BuzzFeed has been chasing this company for months, if not years, in a series of stories about various shenanigans and unsavory business practices. And you could argue that that pursuit led to the CEO's downfall. So I would recommend reading that backlog of stories on Zenefits and BuzzFeed. Sajit Indap, David Crow. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And coming up next is the follow-up segment where Emilia Mahasek will tell us all the things we did right and wrong in last week's episode. Emilia. Almost always right. Almost always right. Occasionally wrong. Occasionally praising and occasionally biting, but always incisive. Perfect, Ricardo. (laughs) (laughs) I was fascinated by Michael Pettis. Is there more to Michael Pettis? Can we have more of his uh, insight into 
You you can emerging I, markets. I, I should dead. note that Michael Pettis is the first ever three time guest on Alpha Chat. He was also the very first guest that Alpha Chat ever had in the middle of 2011. It was an earlier uh, incarnation of the podcast. So you can look up those earlier episodes if you want Michael Pettis at length. You can also go look up his 20,000 word blog post over at his website. It's a hell of a read and a kind of tour de force through all the ways in which China is trying to change its economy and the many ways in which it very well might fail. Well, there are so many things you could read across to other emerging economies at the moment. And in fact, last night, I think further to the theme, there was some figures on Chinese outflows, 110 billion for January, which nobody believes, everybody thinks they're too low. And so I, I was listening in the wake of that, and I thought that we could hear a lot more. Sure. And in fact, I'd be interested in hearing more from you and Matt about other economies sure. and their debt burdens and yeah. what happens in a world where there's negative interest rates and there seems to be cash everywhere and cash is leaving these places. Caveat is just that in the case of China, the scale is of such a different magnitude mm. that all of its effects are amplified across the world. And that, that doesn't really apply to every emerging market, um, but there still might be some some similarities there, but it's an interesting topic. Yeah, something we can come back to. And also fascinating uh, follow-on to this week's events um, was the discussion about Donald Trump and the conservative media in the light of uh, Donald Trump's victory in New Hampshire. I wondered whether Shannon would revise her view. <laughs> I, as, as promised uh, right at the beginning, all of our forecasts are going to be wrong. And I'm totally, clearly, totally we're, wrong about my, my Rubio prediction. But I don't think any, I was, I wasn't expecting him to melt down quite so quickly. I still, you know, I'm, I, I, what I think is interesting is like what the Republican Party does because it's get serious, right? Like they look at Trump and they look at Cruz and they think we can't do this. But who else is there? And is the conservative media, I don't listen to enough of it, um, perhaps Amy, who I know has got some subscriptions uh, lately, as all purely for research, might be able to tell us, uh, how do they treat someone like Michael Bloomberg, who is, he's a businessman, so he has conservative values. Mm -hmm. But he's also from New York, and he's pro-choice, and he's anti-guns, mm. and you know, he's, he's spending a ton of money right now, you know, potentially trying to fund opposition to the NRA. You know, we had that discussion a couple of weeks ago at the debate about New York values. And, you know, arguably Michael Bloomberg stands for New York values probably way more than Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine he'd be an incredibly popular figure despite his, his business acumen. He might be popular if he ends up throwing the election to whoever the Republican right. candidate is. <laughs> right. But you kind of can't see I, – I, th I think it would be really hard to see, especially um, Republicans or of the more libertarian bent, you know, getting behind someone who is, you know, tried to ban soda sales in New York City and, you know, instituted a smoking ban and sort of, you know, was known as being kind of trying to impose this nanny state. Having quasi-autocratic tendencies. Yes, yes. So uh, – <laughs> So, but will that be the worst thing they could throw at him? That he has quasi autocratic tendencies, whereas with with Hillary, she has. Uh, there's a lot of history, rightly or wrongly, that they can fall back on. Whether it's her involvement in the Middle East or the Iraq War vote or um, all of these things that are current political events. With Bloomberg, it seems to me there's less you can. Yes, yeah, she's definitely more of a punching bag. Mm. But it's not just a question of what they can throw at him. It's whether or not he fits anywhere in the landscape of voters, right? Yeah. And that's whether or not... And who he, he draws the voters from. Yeah, it's yeah. whether or not he himself could acquire his own base of voters this late in the game and also 
who would he be taking them from? Right. Because you don't really see any argument that he's the type of candidate who brings out people who wouldn't vote otherwise, which is you've seen sort of with Bernie, right? The idea of Bernie Sanders is that, you know, college students who might just set it out can get excited. I don't see that happening with Michael Bloomberg. So he definitely risks being a spoiler. It's just which way is he a spoiler? I think a President Bloomberg is like a kind of a Wall Street delusion. It'll never happen. I think it's a kind of a silly thing to even contemplate. I don't think I don't think he'll get in the first I'll make that prediction. I don't think he'll jump in the race in the first place. But if he does, I can't imagine he'd get more than four or five percent support. I found it fascinating that Rupert Murdoch, who is also a conservative media owner, um, has also been urging Michael Bloomberg to leap into the race. And last night was tweeting extremely negatively about every other contender. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, there's a lot. There's a lot to read between the lines about uh, relationships at, at Fox uh, when you look at Rupert Murdoch's tweets. And Amelia, what is your long form recommendation for our listeners? Because I've been staying up late uh, with all of the election coverage lately, I um, have been fascinated by sleep and there was an extremely good 5,000 word read in the New Yorker this week about sleep. I was being insomniac at four in the morning after watching election results till three in the morning and uh, it's fascinating. It's it's sort of everything from a historical guide to what people try to do to sleep to an actual practical day-to-day guide about gadgets that are out there, this hat that you put on measures your cerebral activity to what else was there smart beds you know odd pillows Charles Dickens apparently used to believe in lying dead in the middle of the bed facing north that was his his wife appreciated that (laughs) short of buying a whole new bed what's like the one best piece of practical advice Uh, not to worry about it so much is the one best piece of advice also the the, there is some there's some science mixed in there about blue photons and their effect on keep, your yeah. melatonin. Keep your device so, out of the bedroom yeah. and don't check what it's yeah. like an hour before going to bed. At least yeah. because there's no sunset on the on the iPad, as yeah. it says in the piece. <laughs> but also the other interesting um, story in the New Yorker, which is just on their website, it's not in the magazine, is about subways in New York banning sleeping by poor tired people. So on that note. <laughs> <laughs> oh, apparently podcasts. Fantastic for going to sleep. <laughs> Millie Mahasuk, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Shannon, our turn. What is your long-form wreck for our listeners? Uh, mine this week um, is a bit of uh, fluff in a way, but really appealing for anybody who is a child slash teenager of the 90s. I'm really enjoying The People versus O.J. Simpson on FX. It's a essentially you know, made-for-TV miniseries about the OJ trial, and it's really fun and really engaging. What about you, Cardiff? I am going to throw a nod to one of our competitors, okay? Uh, Tracy Alloway, who used to be at the FT and at Alphaville and is now at Bloomberg, co-hosts, along with Joe Weisenthal, a podcast called Odd Lots. It's really great, and especially in the kind of barren desert for podcasts about finance and economics, I think it stands out. Their latest episode was an interview with the stand-up economist, Yoram Bauman, who combines economics and comedy. It was both funny and lighthearted, and I really recommend it. Shannon, as always, I need your help closing out the show. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We would love to hear your recommendations and also your thoughts about the show. You can give us a call at 917-551-5012. Leave us a voicemail 
or record a voice memo or send an email to alphachat at ft.com. We're on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. And Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. And if Theranos needs an idea for a new business model, I recommend that it switch to trying to clone the amazing Amy Keene, who edits and produces this podcast every week. The world needs way more people like her. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. And we'll see you again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.